Amen. Thank you, sir. Okay, well, we continue our study in the book of Isaiah. And last week we got into Isaiah chapter 11. And it opens up by this idea, uh, there shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. What's implied there is what? We looked last week at the branch, but what is implied? Jesse is who? David's father. And it, it suggests that the stump means this great dynasty, this Judaic kingly monarchy has been cut. But what comes out of that? Just a little shoot, a little sign of life, if you will. And it's called uh, the rod from the stem of Jesse, the branch shall grow out of his roots. And we looked, even in uh, Isaiah chapter 4, he made reference to this uh, verse 2. It says, in that day the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious and the fruit of the earth shall be excellent and appealing uh, for those of Israel who have escaped. The idea being, I don't want to go through it again today, but there was this idea of this branch. Uh, this one is coming. Netzer is the word in Hebrew. And it's going to be small and tender, but then in a sense he's going to fill the earth with his glory. You know? And it's, it's rather consistent when you go through the scriptures. And then in Isaiah 11, it will then talk about... Um, this spirit, uh, and he gives these six to seven um, attributes of the spirit here. The, the Holy Spirit will come upon, what's key here is a person. Verse two says, the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Okay, him, not a nation or a people group, but him. And so uh, if you turn to Isaiah chapter 61, Isaiah 61, and if somebody would read verse uh, one through uh, one and two. I'm just trying to connect this and then we'll move on to the middle section of uh, where we left off last week. But Isaiah 61, uh, verse uh, one and two. The Spirit of the Lord, God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me uh, to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives, freedom Okay, he, one more little phrase. Okay, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who Okay, um, now, 700 years later, when Jesus opens his ministry in Luke chapter 4, he, he's, in, he's in the synagogue, he's invited to do the reading that day. Um, um, and then, then it says... Uh, verse 14 uh, in Luke chapter 4 uh, he returns to Nazareth his hometown not his headquarter town because he's going to leave Nazareth shortly after this to, to be in Capernaum which is his real ministry town he comes to Nazareth uh, he comes into the synagogue on the Sabbath day as was his custom they handed him the book of the prophet Isaiah and then he says he recites this he goes right to Isaiah 61 the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel of the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim the liberty of the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Then he says, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. He stops there. What doesn't he say? He doesn't talk about the vengeance. The day of God's vengeance. He doesn't complete that verse from chapter uh, 61, verse 2. Do you see? He, he stops, if you will, on a comma. Because why? His first coming, he says, I do not come into the world to judge the world, but to 
save the world. He says, I did not come to be served, but to serve and give my life a ransom for many. That's his first coming. But the second, when you move, that is the great and terrible day of the Lord, the day of God's vengeance. Do you understand that? He, it's very interesting how he stops right there. That's where he says, uh, do not think that I've not come to, 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 to disallow, uh, disannul the law. I came to fulfill it to what, to what level of accuracy? Every jot and every tittle, every comma, every point. And so he stops here and he hands the book back or the scroll to the attendant. And um, he says, then he says, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your ears. That is a, a powerful saying. I mean, to, to say that is, is, you know, like so many of our Lord's statements, like in Matthew 13, when he says he's Lord of the Sabbath, in that culture, in that context, this is, this is, either he is God come in the flesh, or this is like somebody saying, I'm Napoleon or Julius Caesar. You know, I mean, it's just so that far out, but Jesus claims it, he addresses it, he hands the scroll, and thus will start his ministry. And the branch is now here. Do you understand the branch is now any thoughts on that? It's just kind of like, yes, Fred. Um, on the second part of verse uh, 2, uh -huh. um, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord, and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. Could that refer to the second coming? Mm -hmm. That's probably what is implied here, is the second Yeah, And we see this in Isaiah, you know, and, and again, in, in some ways, why Jewish people missed it in a sense, they saw the coming of the Messiah as the lion of the tribe of Judah. The king is going to come to conquer. He's going to push out foreign invaders like Rome said. He's going to establish his kingdom in Zion. And matter of fact, in the book of Acts chapter 1, he's just moments before of ascension into heaven. And what is his apostles asking him? Lord, at this time will you restore the kingdom? That, that's, that's like, it's just moments before ascending and he says to them no it's not for you to know the times go back to Jerusalem be filled with the Holy Spirit you're my witnesses in Jerusalem Judea Samaria and the ends of the world you know but it was that idea they thought maybe that was it this is going to be the start he's going to establish his kingdom in Zion and thus all these second coming prophecies would, would be, start being fulfilled but it's a, it's a very interesting. First time he comes back as a humble servant. Second time he comes back as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Yes. I can't help but think, Just a little bit louder, please. I can't help but think that um, Matthew 3 um, says he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And that's what it says. Um, In Isaiah chapter 11 and 61, right? Yeah. So we're just seeing how these two testaments clip together, how they go tongue and groove. Okay, let's go back then to Isaiah chapter 11 and um, pick up here. Now, it says, we left off last week where we were looking at this idea, the wolf also shall dwell with the lamb, the leopard, lie down with the young goat, the calf, and the young... It's, it speaks of reconciliation. It speaks of peace. It speaks of adversaries now dwelling together. Okay? And he uses the, the idea the carnivorous will lie down with the one that used to be the prey. Then he goes back and forth. And then he even comes to this idea of uh, the young one shall lie down together. The lion shall eat straw like an ox. The nursing child shall play like the cobra's hole, the poisonous snake. And so, here's that famous painting. 
uh, by Hicks. Uh, somebody might remember this uh, very famous painting. This man was a Quaker, but this was called a peaceable kingdom. And he was kind of capturing, he was trying to capture Isaiah chapter 11, uh, what is going on here. And what is going on here? What is the prophet telling us here? You know, huh? Yeah, he's talking about, now remember the a key to the book of Isaiah is kingship, okay? Because Isaiah prophesied in the span of four kings, perhaps five kings, Ahaz and Hezekiah, and they're, some are good and not so good, and you know, but they're not, but he's showing the king, what would the perfect king be like, you know? And he's, what would his kingdom look like when he comes? And earlier on it says this king will judge in righteousness, he has counsel, he has wisdom, all those descriptive phrases in verse three uh, through five. But now when this king comes, uh, he establishes almost, everything goes back into harmony. Now I don't want to get into a big debate about millennium and the day of the Lord and this, but we do know that when our Lord comes, there is this sense of things are put right. Uh, everything, at the, at, if you study Genesis at the end of chapter one, when God is finished on the sixth day, what does he say about his creation? He said, not just good, but he says it's very good. At that point, there's no death, uh, there's no destruction, there's no chaos, there's no demonic uh, infiltration into the human condition. There's no strife uh, between humanity, you know, Adam and Eve. All of these things, it's like a, it's close, it's a perfect, it's, it's pristine, God created. By the time you get to chapter three, Genesis, after the fall, everything is broken. It's like fine china that breaks and is shattered. And we try to put it together. Men, we try, you know, glue it. But you never can put it together until, so to speak, the, the master comes and puts it all together in right harmony again. Does that make sense? We, this is not the world God created. Yes? This is not the world God originally created. Um, we will see that world reemerge in, in, in uh, Revelation chapter 20. In Revelation chapter 1, 21, there's no more curse, there's no more pain, there's no more sorrow, there's no more tears. He'll restore everything. And that's kind of what he's, he's bringing out here, where these adversaries, these things that used to be in conflict, are no longer. Okay, And you'll see this even uh, later on in Isaiah, uh, but you'll also see it if you go to Romans chapter 8 for a moment. I, I can put it up on the board maybe too. Uh, Romans chapter 8, and um, it's this idea where he's, he's, he's talking about in Romans where there's going to be this um, restoration. Uh, maybe somebody could read verse 18 uh, through 22. Romans chapter 8, and I'll put it on the board. Okay, do you see that idea that creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption? The creation itself. 
Because when Adam and Eve rebelled against God and disobeyed God and obeyed Satan and went that direction, they, they, they opened the door. It was a home invasion, if I can use that word. You know, everything was, was changed at that moment in time. It, even creation itself, even creation itself changed. That's why it talks about now, uh, no longer will, will uh, Adam and Eve be gardeners, you know, or caretakers of the garden. They will what? Adam will what? He'll work the land by the sweat of his brow. No longer will there be no chain in, in pain in childbirth. Now he will bring forth children in, in pain. You understand? Now will come forth thorns and thistles. Now uh, things are changed. Things are different now, if I can use that expression. But we're moving to this place where the second Adam, Romans chapter 5, Isaiah chapter, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, he's going to restore things. He's actually started that restoration now. How? How is, how is he... How does this thing have a present and a far fulfillment? This restoration process. Think about that. I'm just. Christ, I can't hear. Christ is. A... Jesus has come. Now let, let's look at what it says here. He says, um, verse 20 of Romans says, "For the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it in, in, in hope, because the creation itself." also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation, this whole universe, groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for what? The redemption, which is what? I'll keep reading that verse. Verse 23, huh? Our body, you see, this, this corruptible is going to put on incorruptibility, right? That's, that's why Jesus is the first fruit. And it says in um, 1 Corinthians 15, why he come out of the ground with a resurrection body. So we are the harvest, all of us. When, 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 when we, at that last day, we put on immortality in the twinkling of an eye. I did a funeral service, the eulogy this past week, but we used that out of 1 Corinthians 15, that... Because of Jesus, we are not like other people who have no hope. We have the hope of the blessed resurrection. Why? This life is so brief. It's so brief. But as, as that happens, as the second coming comes, and we're all caught up to be with the Lord, as it says in the scripture, so too then creation itself is going gonna, is gonna to be, uh, if I can use, renewed. Does that make sense? You know, it talks about this at the end of the book of Revelation. It talks about this in Isaiah chapter 65. We're looking at it here in Isaiah chapter 11. Any thoughts on any of this? It's really, it, su it suggests that the whole storyline is moving towards this end point, this whole big story we call the, the God's redemptive plan. Yes, Marie? Why is God allowing all the evil in the world? And but what people forget. 
forget is that we live in this fallen world, number one. Number two, people have a choice. So I, I, that, that is a big question, though, that people have, is it not? It's, 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 it, it comes under the whole study of theodicy, T-H-E-O. Uh, and it's why some people don't come to, to the Lord. Uh, this study. But it's that idea, why, why is there suffering? Why is there pain? Uh, why do we see this? You know, you open up the newspaper, you turn on a TV, and people will say, they're, 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 the, the, the dilemma they say is this. If God is all good, then he is not all powerful. If he is all powerful, then he is not all good. Because if he was all good and all powerful, he would stop and bring goodness, usher in goodness. But it, maybe he can't, maybe he's not that powerful, or maybe he's not that good. Did you ever hear this, this famous argument that, that atheists use? But the, the, your response would be what? Define good. Okay, define good. Okay, he'll use, use suffering, the, the, you know. Uh, you bring up a good point. Uh, how do we know something is good or bad? Huh? Because if there's no God, if there's no standard, uh, what is bad and what is good? And how do we determine it? For example, somebody say, well, Hitler wasn't bad if we're evolutionists and we're atheists because he was trying to hurry up the evolutionary process and have the super race and the Aryan... You know, well, who's to say he's wrong? He sincerely believed he was right. You know, in other words, you cannot have darkness if you don't have light. Because darkness needs to be corresponding to something. You can have light without darkness, but you cannot have darkness without light. Does that make sense? And darkness is only the absence of light. Darkness is the absence of light. What I'm getting at, you have to have a standard, and that standard is God. Without that, we have no moral standard even to start the, 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 the question of what is good and what is evil. Does that, does that make sense? In other words, if, if, if you found a um, really good wrench out in the backyard and it's rusted and everything, you wouldn't know if you never saw that wrench before, unless you had a standard wrench that was brand new, glistening, working, everything, how bad that thing was. You'd just think, well, maybe this is the way it's, but once you have the standard, you know how far that has gone from the standard. God is the standard, and God's revealed his goodness to all men. Not even put the Bible aside, because what, is, what did our founding fathers say? We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created. Okay? What, and it, that doesn't come from Congress, thank goodness, making a law saying, we, you know, we believe, you know, because <laughs> we get amended or, or they tax us on it. But what I'm getting at is, is these, these things are self-evident. They, they're known to all men. Now we can suppress that, but this is self-evident. So back to the question, why would God allow evil? Why would God allow suffering? Yes, Margie. Well, he allowed us to free choice. Okay, the freedom of choice is there. You know, the freedom of choice. Yes. Jesus suffered. Okay, this, this is a good, very good point to make, Sue. Uh, the God of the Bible is different. If you study Buddhism, the whole thing with Buddhism is to get away from suffering. That's part of the Four Noble Truths. All life is suffering. Suffering comes from attachment. Get rid of suffering from attachment. You get enlightenment, etc. But uh, the God, we can never say God doesn't know what I'm going through. 
We could never say that. Why? Study what happens to Jesus through his life, but especially through his last week, his passion. He was abandoned. He was betrayed. Friends sold him out. They left him at his final moment. People disparaged him, spit upon him, unjustly accused, falsely accused. Almost every physical wound or harm was brought to him from puncture to laceration to plummeting to dehydration to suffocate. Study it. You could, God has entered into the human experience, and that's why the cross becomes the central symbol or icon of Christianity. Somebody says, too, why doesn't God do something? But I said to them, I said once, I said, God has done something, God is doing something, and he ultimately will do something. You understand? We're in process now. Yes, somebody had their hand up here. Okay, <laughs> that's part of the fall, you see. <laughs> uh, you know, um, but that, that's what we're looking at here, where we're seeing this restoration and things brought back into harmony. Here's what I mean, is it's happening now in your life and my life. Restoration has already started, okay? That's why it says we're looking for the manifestations of the sons of God. We're in process now where we should be changing in a, our little corner of the world. If we're, you know, like our new theme at church, not new, but centered on Christ. If individually we're centered on Christ, if our families are Christ-centered, if we're bringing Christ, the kingdom of God, into the workplace, into the school, we're bringing part of that restoration community. Now, it's not there yet. But just like the wolf lies down with the lion and the lamb lies down with the tiger, so too we can be reconcilers. Does that make sense? It says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that we've been given the ministry of reconciliation. Reconciliation means bringing two opposing parties together. You know, we can start that in our own lives when we start offering forgiveness to somebody we offended. Or we, that's why when we pray, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. Okay, thy kingdom come. Now that is end of the age stuff. One day Jesus' kingdom is coming. His kingdom, he will, an everlasting throne. But in a sense, his kingdom is coming now in, in a gradual sort of way. That's why we pray, thy kingdom come. On earth, where on the earth? Right here, starting with me, starting with you, starting with this church. Does that make sense? We, we must never minimize the power of one life to affect restoration. Uh, yes, please. In my um, daily meditation this morning, it talked about how we can be spiritually blind and so blind that we can't even see that we're blind. And if you were talking to a person using the points that you're bringing up, which are excellent, and they're still saying, but I don't believe in God. I, right. I don't believe the Bible. I don't believe anything you're telling me. Um, that's a choice, of course, but at the same time, is that possibly God hardening that person's heart? Or we yeah. just don't know. It's, we don't know. But it does say in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, that if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them whom the God of this age has blinded, lest they look at the glorious light of the gospel. So the natural condition of human beings born into this world is to be spiritually blind. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. Now, to that point, 
When you share the gospel with somebody and they refuse, uh, there's two things going on. They might have genuine obstacles, why they don't believe the gospel or that Jesus was God coming to flesh or salvation. Those could, like C.S. Lewis, he had real obstacles, he said, but his good friends kind of walked him through and he says, hey, I'm going to become a believer. That's one thing. That's, that's intellectual. But the will is different. If you said to somebody, look, if, if, if all of your arguments could be proven wrong and this was true, the Bible's true, would you become a Christian? And if at that point they say no, it's that the problem is not here, it's here. You have a much harder time moving the will than the mind. Does that make sense? Because, because people have honest objections. You know, why is there one way and how could Jesus be fully God and fully man? But if they don't want it, even though it's shown to them, then you have another issue. That's a deep, I think that's a deeper issue with the will. The will is set against God. Now, God can break that. You know, that's why we pray for people to, before they come to Christ to, to see God to soften their heart. But that's a, that's a bigger issue. Because really, human beings, when you really come down to it, um, the Bible clearly says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Because what is his mind telling him? There's something going on here. This is just not, I don't care how far out they are. They're, they know there's something here. They may not call it the God of the Bible, but in terms of design or intent or creation, yeah. I was talking to a friend of mine, John, a couple weeks ago, and uh, I maybe made a mistake when I do this, but I brought up the term about Christers, Christmas, mm -hmm. Easter, going mm -hmm. to church, mm -hmm. and boy, did he fly off the hand. I, he, he was convicted. Uh -huh. You could tell he was convicted because he, he knew in here or whatever that what I said, it struck home. Uh huh. You know, at least, uh, you know, I just, you know, hopefully it made a little spark. Yeah, like, yeah. You know. Yeah, you never know. You know, I think in a sense we're always planting seeds. You know, God brings us opportunities to. Even though if we're not quote-unquote sharing the gospel, we're sharing our story. There might be something about our lives they're interested in, or how can, like again, this funeral I went to last week, it was incredibly celebratory. It was really, I mean, it's still sad. Uh, this lady passed away, went to be with the Lord, but there was a videotape of her testimony and this and all these people whose lives she touched. So it was really, that had an impact on, for certain on people that were sitting in that congregation who weren't believers. Had to, at least in a limited sense. Somebody else had. Did you watch the Billy Graham? Uh, I watched parts of it, yeah. Uh, yeah, the service. Yeah, that was great. Somebody else had a hand. Yes, I, I think I mentioned this a couple weeks ago to you, but Alistair Bay had a, uh, a radio message about this topic, and he said that if someone says, I don't want to believe, then it's very easy for them to say it's not true. Yeah. And you can't argue them out of that. Yeah, that's a good point because so many people like that they're looking for reasons Not to believe Not seeking honestly reasons to believe. I mean, I don't know if anybody's coming to this IX uh, prayer thing in May We have Jay Warner Wallace this homicide detective. Did anybody hear about this at the IX Center every year? They have this big prayer cup. Well this guy Google it up but he was a famous homicide detective in Los Angeles. If you watch Dateline, 48 Hours, Unsolved, Cold Case, you'd always see this guy on there. Well, he was a hardcore atheist, like his dad, who was also a police officer. 
But a friend of his, another fellow detective, says, why don't you just look at the Gospels like a detective and see where the evidence takes you? He spent several years doing it, and he come up with it. He says, it's proof positive. He became a very solid Christian. He wrote the book, Cold Case Christianity, and he approaches it like just evidence. He just says, follow the evidence. He's very high in demand now because he has a way of explaining the proof systems if he's needed for the Gospels, but he'll be there. I think it's May 10th at the IX Center. Uh, Jay Warner Wallace, very good guy. I've read some of his stuff. But again, if you're looking for, if you're sincerely seeking the Lord, you will find him. But if you're looking for reasons not to believe, that's a whole other issue. The, 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 more, the, the better way to do it is look at both sides. Look at those that oppose the proof and those that prove the resurrection of Jesus or the deed. Does that make sense? And then, and then follow where that leads you. Yes. I, I don't know if you heard about that. Uh, there, there was, I saw this. Really peaking now. Yeah, right. I know. And how, so, you know, why, okay, you gotta ask yourself, why is, you know, why would these people that seem so much, so many times against that, you know, why is this, you know, what's driving this? Well, one thing is they sell. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> There's an audience out there that is really looking uh, for like this most recent, I can only imagine. And, case for God and they, there's a there's already and the other thing is I believe that we're in a, a point in that people are spiritually seeking I really think we're in a place in time uh, fear is out there anxiety rapid change uh, people are looking they're really seeking for but but if some uh, the original question that got me off on this segue if, if, if people don't want to look at the Word of God and, and they just close their eyes like that my motto is this when people refuse uh, to see the light of God's word, help them to feel the warmth of God's love. See what I'm saying? When they refuse to look and open their eyes to see the light of God's word, help them to feel the warmth of God's love. Mercy, kindness, give them a call, they're going through a difficult situation. Not even witnessing, so to speak, just let them feel. And this is so important in the Muslim, how so many Muslims come into Christ today, they'll tell you time and again, it wasn't a really good apologetic or an information or argumentation and proof systems. It was love we felt in the Christian community. Time and again, they will say that it was that love that drew me. Um, anyhow, okay, back to Isaiah, yeah. Uh, we're doing, doing good, Isaiah chapter 11. Um, now, he switches gears just a little bit. Uh, Isaiah chapter 11, then he says this in verse 10. And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse. Now what did he call it in verse 1? What's the difference between a rod from the stem of Jesse and now a root of Jesse? What's the difference or is there a difference? Huh? One is... One's post, one's pre. You know what I'm saying? In other words, the ones coming out of the stump, so you had to have the stump, you had to have the dynasty of Jesse, the, you know, David's line, but the other comes, roots suggest it came before the tree grew. How can that be? How can that be? How can this root or this stem be before, but then after? What, 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 mystery, I mean, what, 
central doctrine of the Christian faith does it show us? That Jesus is before Abraham. Remember he says before Abraham. Well, if he's before Abraham, he's before Jesse, because Jesse comes after him. Before Abraham was, I am, but yet he is a descendant. He is the son of David. You understand? So he's before, he's the root, but he's after. You see? But what I like is you see these major Christian doctrines are embedded early in the Old Testament. Does that make sense? I mean, it's clear. It's like once your eyes see it, it's like, okay, here it is. We're not stretching this or making this fit or trying to force a piece of the puzzle in here. It's so clear. And that's why Jesus will challenge them. We looked at that in Matthew 22 last week. He said to the scribes and the Pharisees, you tell me how David, by the Holy Spirit, he says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till you make all your enemies your footstool. How can David call him his Lord? Which means he's, you know, he's the great I am. He has no beginning, no end. Yet he is a son of David. They couldn't answer him anything. Same thing today. How do you explain it? Well, Jesus is God. He's eternal. But he enters into the human time-space situation as the son of David in the incarnation. Perfect. You know, perfect. Any thoughts on this? One thing I hope to, we get through this course is to be sensitive to the relationship of the Old and the New Testament together. You understand? Okay. So let's look at this. Uh, and that in that day shall be the root of, there shall be the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a banner uh, to the people, and Gentiles shall seek him, and his resting place shall be glorious. And now here we see several things. Again, this branch or this root of Jesse is coming. He's going to be established as a banner. You know, it starts out small, but it ends up big. A banner is how the tribes used to uh, form up. You know, they hoist this banner up, and you see this kind of a banner. But he says, then the Gentiles shall seek him. All of a sudden, gears switch. We're dealing with Israel and Judah, and Assyria's coming down, and Babylon's going to... And all of a sudden, now we're talking Gentiles. See, this, all through the book of Isaiah, you see this thing, it's focused on Israel, yeah. But then this idea of Gentiles. Many of the Gentiles, which is us. You get this idea that what God is intending here is not just for the nation or the people of Israel. It's for the Gentiles. And of course, Jesus will bring that uh, in <laughs> post-resurrection when he says, go, I, all, all authority is given to me under heaven and earth. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the Father. And so, I mean, in this room alone, we probably have 10 ethnic groups, you know, English, Irish, Polish, in this room alone. Well, that's because of these kind of claims way back here, 700 years before the first coming of Jesus Christ. And, and of course, this is going to be quoted uh, in the scripture. If you look in, um, uh, like in Isaiah, uh, Romans chapter uh, 5, if we turn there for a minute, you'll see this idea of this, this uh, coming one. Isaiah, uh, I'm sorry, Romans chapter 15, just for a moment. And, and look at verse 9. I'll read it only because I have the mic up here. Uh, Romans chapter 15, verse 9. Uh, and that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. That's us, thanking God and glorifying God. 
For this reason I will confess you to, uh, among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again he says, verse 10, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. That's Judah, that's the Israelites. You're included into this covenant now. Verse 11, and again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Laud him, all you peoples. And then he quotes from where we're at now in Isaiah. Verse 12, and again he said, Isaiah says, There shall be a root of Jesse, and he who shall rise to reign over the Gentiles, in him the Gentiles shall hope. See, he's, he's what I call cut and pasting. He's pulling this Old Testament uh, prophecy and putting it right here in this expose in Romans. And then it says in verse 13, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. But you see, he's taking that verse from where we're at in Isaiah. Does that make sense? You see how he, they're all skilled at this, but of course Paul is highly skilled at this because he's a rabbi. And that's why Paul, he can write the book of Romans. I don't know if any other of the apostles could have written the book of Romans, but he knows how to pull. Same thing with the book of Revelation, when John gets that revelation. To really even approach to some understanding of the book of Revelation, you have to know that Old Testament. Because the writer is pulling so much from the Old Testament. It's almost like the exodus on steroids when you get into the book of Revelation. How God delivers his people, he's with his people, he judges the enemy, he opens seas, crystal, you know, tabernacles, all this stuff is going on. But it's the idea, that's why we study the Old Testament. Yes? That's why we really, it's a treasure. Any thoughts on this? Yes, Richard. Well, your Richard. comment about him appealing to all the nations, that even goes back to Abraham. Yeah. Abraham chapter 12, what does God say? I'm going to bless you that you may be a blessing to all the families on the earth. Has your family been blessed through the Abrahamic blessing? If not, you better check it. <laughs> Why not? But that's then you're right, Richard. You're going way back. Early Genesis where God wants to bless all the peoples. One of the problems Israel would have is when they thought it was just for them. See, they were to be a city set on a hill where other nations would come to inquire of the Lord. You see that happening like, uh, uh, you know, uh, the Ethiopian eunuch coming or um, when the leprous man comes down and he bathes in the Jordan. And people want to, they want to know about this God. But when Israel thought it was just for them, they made God almost a tribal deity, like the Amorites or the Canaanites. You know, they just, he's ours alone. We'll take him into battle. It, no, it's meant for all the people. That's why Jesus kind of opens that floodgate with a command. Go to all the nations. Go. Take it all to the nations. And it takes a little bit of stirring for the apostles to do that. Because they're headquartered where? Jerusalem. They're not leaving. He says in chapter 1, verse 8, go. You know, once you get the power, go to the ends of the earth. We had an old mission pastor who says, look, if we don't obey chapter 1, verse 8, God may send chapter 8, verse 1. Persecution came to the church and they scattered. And they went on. <laughs> But it's true. We're, we're, this, is, this is for everybody, you know? And, and I think we can, even as Americans, we can get a little hard shell. Or even as a church sometimes, we can get hard shell. It's us, like a holy huddle. No, it's, it's meant for all people. I mean, that's, why we're, that's our purpose, really, is to, is to come to Christ and then go for Christ to the end. Okay, so here we see how he ties that in back to chapter... Uh, uh, verse 11. And then back here in Isaiah, uh, Gentiles will seek him. And then it says, it will come to pass in that day 
that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time. And here's where he brings up this deliverance. And I'm going to go through this rather quickly, but get to the end. But what he's saying here is God is still with the southern kingdom. Assyria is going to come down. They're going to threaten them. They're going to surround them. But there's this great miracle takes place where God will destroy them. We'll look at that. It's in Kings. He'll destroy them. But they're coming. And, of course, they're fearful. Israel naturally, I mean, Judah is fearful. And then he, he winds this out just a little bit, and I'll wrap it up on this. But if you look at verse 16, he said, verse 16 of Isaiah 11, There will be a highway for the remnant of his people who will be, uh, be left from Assyria, uh, as it was for Israel in the day that he came up from the land of Egypt. And now here is where Isaiah references this idea of a highway. Let me go to this in a minute. The highway of the Lord, it's later called. Uh, but it says in Isaiah 35, 8, and the highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness. It will be for those who walk on that way. The unclean will not journey on it, and the wicked fools will not go about on it. So he's establishing that there's this road system, as it were, for the righteous to go. Again, in Isaiah Go through, go through the gates, prepare the way for the people. Build up, build up the highway, take out the stones, lift up the banner. There's that banner for the people. So there's this highway, right? We'll watch how this ties together in the New Testament. Jeremiah says this, is Ephraim my dear son? Is he a pleasant child? For though I spoke against him, remember God brought judgment on the northern kingdom, I earnestly remember him still. Therefore my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him, says the Lord. Set up your signposts, make the landmarks, set your heart towards the highway. Now he says, not only your eyes towards it, he says, set your heart towards the highway, the way in which you went. Turn back, O virgin of Israel, turn back to these, your cities. And this is the famous one. Who is this? Who's the voice of one calling in the wilderness? Prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a high... Who's saying that? John the Baptist. Isaiah chapter 40, using this highway metaphor, you know, this, this, this highway. And of course, when he says, make it straight, remove the stones, get the obstacles, he's talking about what? Poetically or metaphorically. What does it mean to remove the stones, make it straight? Sin, repent. Sin, repent. Clear the way. Get the obstacles out of your way. Lay aside every weight of sin that easily besets us. You know, he, he's saying, get ready. Get the, and again, when we lived in Thailand for many years, whenever a part of the royal family, I don't know if the king ever came up to our little town, but if the princess or something come, like three months before they would arrive, and what I mean arrive is basically mean they drive through town, they were, they were painting up the place, they were getting rid of straight dogs, they were redoing the streets, all of this stuff, because royalty was coming. It's the same way John the Baptist is doing here. Get things clean, repent. Get baptized for the remission of your sins. Get things straight up. Why? The king is coming. Any thought on that? that yes, please. You know, it's funny. I'm looking at the word highway. Okay, where did that word come from? The definition of the highway. Uh-huh. You know, it, it was a road that was without obstacles. It, it, it was a clear shot. Right. You know, I mean, if you think of it in that context, I mean, you know, we go back... In those days, you know, I mean, we think highways, you know. Right. What, you know, we think highways. You know, yeah, I, I mean, it, th this was crucial, you know, and of course, at their time, and on a practical level, the Romans had established highway systems, road systems. That's one of the reasons the gospel spread 
to basically was the ends of the earth at that time. They had a good road system because uh, Rome had to keep, in keep their soldiers on the move in trade and commerce. But that was a big reason. The other was the Greek language, which was perfect for the New Testament. So here's this idea of John saying, uh, we'll come to that. And, and of course, our Lord himself would say, enter through the gate, the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction. Many enter through it, but small is the gate, and narrow the road, this road system that leads to life, and only a few find it. Again, this, using this metaphor. And of course, the famous one, Jesus answered, he doesn't say, I'm going to show you the way. He is the way. Okay. He is, he is the truth. He is the life. He, he doesn't say I'm going to give, yeah, he gives us the truth. But he is the truth. He personifies the truth. You know, there, there, it was told that missionaries wanted to get to this really remote village. They heard there was people, a significant population, but it was in the, really the heart of Africa through all kinds of rough terrain. And they finally hired a guy at this one uh, kind of a mission station, an uh, offloading area. And they, they hired him. They said, oh, he... He can get you to that village, that remote village. And so they start, and they said, they, he said to them, just follow me. And they're going, and they listen, this and that. And they go, he goes, they go, do you have a map of the way how to get there? He says, no, I am the way. You stay close to me. I'll get you there. See, it's that idea. Our Lord is the way. He is the truth. He is the light. If we follow him, we know the way. That's why, really, Christians, the name Christian is used how many times in the New Testament? Anyone guess? Three. Three times. But way, followers of the way, followers of the way, is used over six times. They were followers of the way. They persecuted those who were followers of the way. Followers of the way. Why? Because in a real sense, our, our life is a, is a pilgrimage. Our life is a walk. You know, uh, it, we're told to run the race. But the idea being uh, that we're in the way. And... and Isaiah is using that metaphor. He's going to pick up on that metaphor later in the book of Isaiah when he tells about this highway to the Lord. There's only one road. And see, I'll close on this. That's problematic in today's society and culture because they want many ways. There's only one way. You see? We didn't say that. The church didn't make that up. Jesus himself said that. I am the way, the truth. No one comes to the, you know, there's the only way to get there. But, but it is an open way. It's wide open, to the, even to the point that God is not willing that any should perish and not get in that way. Any closing thoughts before we close in prayer? Okay, next week we'll pick up on Isaiah 13 and 14. And then once we get to 14, I want to look at spiritual warfare. And we'll look at that question was, why do people say, well, they say, why did God create the devil? Did you ever hear that? We're going to look at that next week and see what the response is. All right. Who would like to close us at a word of prayer, please? Back there?